Gratitude might well be the most primal of all human experiences. And it also might be the most ancient of our spiritual practices. Somewhere tens of thousands of years ago, a person came out of a cave, looked up at the night sky, and said, thank you. Thank you. It's so beautiful. It's intuitive. It was that moment, that insight, that helped to make us more fully human, to recognize that the whole of the universe was a gift, and that we, as small beings, could respond to gifts and say thank you. It is that action and that insight that becomes central to all of the religious traditions that human beings would ever imagine and would ever practice. It's that native, that natural, and that important to who we are. And so I have only one question. Why is it so hard? <laughs> because it really is. Gratitude is not that easy. And all of those religious traditions born in that heartbeat of saying thanks have always known that. They have known that gratitude is more than just that remarkable moment of looking up and saying thank you, but that it was something else as well. It was a calling into a moral way of being, into a way of life that would help us to be able to live in a world of giftedness and abundance, and that it would be a response, that we could live responsibly and responsively to gods or the God who made us and to our neighbors. So it's two things. It's that emotional response and it is a moral choice. Perhaps no single verse in the Christian tradition um, illustrates the difficulty of gratitude quite as well as a verse in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is actually the oldest book in the Christian New Testament. It is the most ancient piece of theology that we own. And it is a book that talks a lot about thanks. The beginning of it is a long discursive section on thanks and gratitude. And then the book arcs through a whole bunch of questions that were very puzzling to early Christians and ends up with 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you and your experience, um, if you are a Christian, um, I am a Christian, I grew up with these texts, these stories, these beautiful scriptures, and one of the things that happens with that Bible verse is it, it goes on a lot of posters. It's in pastor's offices, it hangs up in dorm rooms at Christian colleges of my, my female friends that usually had like waterfalls and pink flowers on it, and um, I actually sort of came to, to hate that verse. Uh, because it always seemed like a kind of hallmark card to me. But there was something about it that went well beyond 
Hallmark cards that really bothered me. And what bothered me was the beginning and the end of the verse. The beginning of the verse says, in all things give thanks. In all things? In everything that happens in my life, give thanks. Give thanks when I fail at something, when I am in despair, have lost hope, someone I know is sick or a relative has died. Give thanks in those things. And I tell you, all of us have experienced our fair share of disappointment, doubt, and despair. And yet that, that verse just stands there, in all things give thanks, no thank you. I say. And it's not just in those things, those things that might upset my own small personal world, but the things that happen when I turn on the television or open up Twitter and I see pictures of a refugee child who is dead in the waters off of European shores, or I hear about a genocide that's taking place across the planet, a whole group of people being wiped out because of their religion. When I know how much the economic system in which I am complicit keeps other people poor so that I might be rich. When I experience, as we are all experiencing right now, these wild weather patterns which are a sign that our earth is screaming out for us to attend to it. In all things give thanks. Well, count me out. I'm not going to give thanks for any of those things. As a matter of fact, when I hear those things, I get angry, and I want to yell back at whoever is that really nice church person standing at the other side of the aisle saying to me, in all things, give thanks. Ugh! No. I have no thanks. I do not feel grateful. As a matter of fact, I think when it comes to all of these things, I am an ingrate. And so, there it was. I took that little verse, and I took that call to gratitude, and I put it in a sort of gratitude box, and I put it on the side of my life of faith, and I went on with things. And so I started studying and writing theology about the big stuff, the really important stuff in Scripture, the stuff about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, God's love and God's justice intertwined with one another, God's dream for the whole of the cosmos, for rest, restoration, reconciliation, and salvation. That was the meat of the gospel. That was the flow of what was really important in theology. And that's what I invested my time in. And then, a couple of years ago, I felt called to start looking at the things that I had put in boxes, the things on the sides that I had not paid much attention to. And that little box marked gratitude it seemed to call out to me. And so I decided to write a book on gratitude. A lot of my friends in mindfulness communities and meditation communities were telling me that gratitude was good for me. And not only gratitude would it be good for me, but the people who uh, practice gratitude live longer. In my late 50s, I really liked the sound of that. <laughs> and so I 
opened up the box, and I said, I'm going to write about this. And I'm going to try to write about it from a distinctly biblical, distinctly Christian perspective. And maybe I'll learn a thing or two. And maybe my books will start selling really well, because those kinds of nice devotionals with pink covers always sell really well. <laughs> and as I studied gratitude, something happened that I never anticipated. And that is gratitude began to open up and I realized that I wasn't just looking at some little practice that could be put in a box on the side of my life, but that gratitude was actually one of the most important themes in the whole of Scripture. Through the Hebrew Bible, all the way to the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, and the very end in the book of Revelation, that gratitude was not a minor chord, it was a major chord. It was one of the, the threads that weaves through everything. And that gratitude actually is part of the reign of God. It is part of God's compassion and justice. It is part of God's dream for us. And so gratitude became not a little story, but a big story, a narrative by which to look at the whole narrative of Scripture. And in the midst of that, something really, truly surprising uh, began to happen. Is that that second part of the verse, the one that goes, this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, that began to pop. Because I had always thought about gratitude, not only as a sort of minor chord, something that could be put on the side, but it really troubled me because Jesus was implicated in it. And that somehow to be a good follower of Jesus, you had to give thanks and praise to Jesus, and Jesus was an example of a perfectly thankful life. And that if I was going to follow that Jesus, I had to imitate that Jesus. And when I did this study of gratitude, when I began thinking about gratitude differently, Jesus became different. And Jesus was not just the object of praise and thankfulness. Jesus was not just the example. But instead, Jesus, thank goodness, emerged as an ingrate too. <laughs> and I felt relieved by that. To understand Jesus as an ingrate is a really important call for this particular day and time in our culture. Um, Jesus himself lived in the intersection of two really important cultures. One was his own Jewish heritage and Jewish community, and the second was Roman imperialism in the Mediterranean world. These two cultures were constantly in conflict with one another. And what's fascinating about them is they had two different, very distinctive views of gratitude. The Roman view of gratitude was not just as a moral practice, not just as a sort of nice thing to do. Remember to send your Aunt Lydia a thank you card after uh, the holiday for the, the sun. Uh, but instead, it was a political, economic, and social practice. If you think about the way the ancient Roman Empire was structured, it was like this, a pyramid. At the top is Caesar and his friends. At the bottom are people who are peasants, slaves, small farmers, freed slaves, and subjects of Roman imperialism. There's a middle group too, 
mostly soldiers, artisans, merchants, sort of the bureaucrats who kept the Roman Empire going. And I've always wondered about these kinds of structures and how they stay in place, because they're inherently unstable. Even though most people are at the bottom, giving the pyramid a big base, most wealth is at the top. And so those people are the richest and most powerful, and it flows down negatively towards the people in the bottom. So how in the world do you keep a social structure like that going, especially a social structure like ancient Rome, which lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and still actually has an impact on us today, well, you keep it going basically in two ways. One, a really big bad army and lots of violence. And two, you have to have a social structure that invests people in some way in this particular unfair and oppressive pyramid. That social structure in ancient Rome was referred to as the patronage system. And the way it worked was quite simple. The people at the top were considered to be the ones who held all the benefits, and those people were responsible to pass some of the benefits of Roman largesse down to everyone else in the pyramid. When those people at the top, the patrons, passed stuff down, they were responsible to feed people and to make sure people were safe, and so protection and provision, and also some level of political power moved from there to there. The people at the bottom then had a responsibility. Their job was to pass stuff back up as an act of appreciation to their benefactors. This was all held together by force of law. Gifts flowed down, and then thanks flowed up. And the gifts of thanks that we, the people on the bottom, were supposed to give were taxes, tithes, tributes, worship, honor, utter loyalty, and the complete um, obligation that our whole lives were given over to Caesar and Caesar's empire. This was not something you entered into because you signed a contract or because you wanted to. This was the law. And this system of patronage was a system of gratitude. The stuff that got sent down, those benefits, in Latin that word was gratus, and the stuff that was sent back up, in Latin, same word, gratus. When it comes down, it's translated grace or favor. When it goes up, it's translated gratitude. This was a system of obligatory gratitude that put people in debt to one another Always. If someone gave you something, you had to discharge the debt. It was the law. And if you didn't, you could be exiled, sent to prison, or executed. That's where we get the English word gratitude. And that, of course, is where Jesus comes into the story. Jesus lived in a time when that was gratus. That was gratitude. And many of Jesus' encounters are encounters about this system of patronage, including a very simple story that if, you're, if you are a Christian person, you probably know this story from your childhood up. 
And that is a story where Jesus meets a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is like Jesus, a Jew. And Zacchaeus had become a tax collector. People could become tax collectors not by going to like Jerusalem Business School of Taxes. Uh, but instead, people became tax collectors because once a year, the Roman authorities, which were very clever, would auction off a few numbers of higher status positions to people who were subjects of Roman imperialism. And you could bid on them, and you could win a higher position in the social structure. And so Zacchaeus, that's how he would have become a tax collector, by bidding on a job and rising up in the social structure. Of course, his job was then to make sure that benefits got down to the poor people, in which case he would skim stuff off as they were making their way down, and that gratitude got back up to Caesar, in which case he would skim stuff off when it was moving the other way. Zacchaeus benefited from Roman gratitude. And so there is Zacchaeus and Jesus. As the story goes, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town, and we're told he's short. So he runs to the edge of town, he climbs a tree, gets up in a tree, and he wants to be the first person in Jericho to see Jesus. Jesus sees him, they have this lovely little chat, and then they go out to dinner. It's a wonderful Bible story for uh, elementary school kids. And that's not what it means at all. What happens is that Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town, and he knows something about Jesus. That is, Jesus has been talking about Caesar and taxes in other places, and Zacchaeus is terrified. What is this guy going to say when he gets to Jericho? Is he going to tell people to pay their taxes? Is he not going to tell people to pay their taxes? Is he going to offer one of these crazy parables that he always does and nobody knows what he means by the whole thing? I have got to hear this before anybody else does because this impacts me and my job. And so Zacchaeus does the only thing Zacchaeus knows to do, and that is he runs to the edge of town and he climbs up a tree. Why? Because that's what Zacchaeus does. He's a climber. He climbs in front of everybody in order to get a better view, in order to improve his position with the people in authority. And Jesus sees this guy up in the tree, and he knows everything that's going on with Zacchaeus. And he says, hey, you, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree. This is not about a tree. Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, you come down from that system where you have put yourself as a complicit agent of Roman imperialism. You get out of those branches. Disentangle yourself. Come down. Be on ground with me. And then, of course, Zacchaeus does it. He's so shocked. And Jesus says to him, oh, and by the way, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. I'm taking you out of that system and structure of gratitude, and I'm putting you into God's vision of gratitude. A table, not a pyramid. A place where gifts are abundant, not scarce. A place where we're all receivers and all givers, that not just a few of us give, and the others of us are in debt forever to the people above us. Zacchaeus hears this invitation, and he takes it. And not only does he hear it, but he says to Jesus, yes, 
Yes, yes. And you know it's political because what he does next, he says, by the way, I'm going to give everything back that I have stolen and all of the people I have defrauded, I'm going to make it right. He quits his job as a tax collector and he goes and he has dinner with Jesus and Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is an ingrate to the Roman system of gratitude that enslaves us in debt, that holds us in oppression, and that is a system that, based in this beautiful word, has twisted it and corrupted it beyond recognition. And Jesus says, no, I am not grateful. And instead... Jesus resets the ancient story of the Hebrew people. Lord, God, can you set a table in the wilderness? Best question ever asked in the Hebrew Bible. And God, of course, says yes. And that's the question that Jesus answers over and over again. Can we be grateful? Can we be God's people? Can we live a life of jubilee, of thanks, of Sabbath, of true, deep gratitude? Yes, Jesus says. God's dream is here. But you have to be able to discern the difference between these systems and structures of gratitude. Please, Jesus says, come down out of the tree and sit around a table. Or maybe Jesus is asking us finally to come out of the caves where we've been hiding in fear and to finally look up and see the beauty and abundance of the universe and go back to the people we were always intended to be. Thank you.